welcome to Reinventing Home. I'm your host, Valerie Andrews, and today we're going to be talking about women, money, and the home. My guest is Christian McEwen, a writer, educator, and cultural activist who's lived in Scotland, Berkeley, New York, and Western Massachusetts. Her essays have been published in Granta, The Village Voice, and The Nation. Her book, World Enough in Time, on creativity and slowing down, is now in its seventh printing. Her latest offering is Legal Tender, Women and the Secret Life of Money. Legal Tender began as a play, one I was fortunate enough to see performed by a chorus of diverse women in Northampton, Massachusetts, about five years ago. Christian, I am very happy you've turned these powerful narratives into a book. Here, women from different backgrounds talk about how they learned about money around the dinner table and from the way their parents ran the home. Can you tell us how you first got the idea to collect these stories? Well, it was the spring of 2009, and I had a tiny part in a performance, a local performance of the Vagina Monologues, Evangelist play. And at the party afterwards, I said to one of the other actors, what other topic brings up those complicated, contradictory, multi-layered feelings for women, apart from our vaginas? And before I reached the end of the sentence, I thought, money, I need to do a project about money. I'm wondering what it is about money that we feel we never have enough. I think it goes back to the late 60s, early 70s, the last wave of feminism, and the fact that a woman making her way in the world and making sufficient to pay her way in the world is still a relatively recent thing. My generation, which is the boomer generation, we're probably the first generation where women are actually expected to pay our own way. We like to think we've arrived politically, yet <laughs> in so many ways it currently it feels as if we're going backwards. And we need those stories of empowerment. We need to hear how other women have managed. Because even now, the average woman makes 77 cents to the male dollar. That's the mean across the United States. I find it fascinating that you started to write this book during the recession and that, as you say, the one topic that's as vibrant for women as their private body parts happens to be their private thoughts about money. For many of the women, was telling their story about money a kind of therapy? I think it was. I think it was different from therapy in that I was I had no agenda beyond hearing the story. I wasn't trying to heal them or improve their finances or mend their relationship with their husband or their mother or anything of that nature. And what I really experienced listening was that the story came alive in its fullness to them and therefore to me in probably in a way that it probably never had before. And the image I have for this is like the money monster rising into the room, you know, like a kind of dinosaur on its back feet with its great snout sticking out in their shoulder. I mean, there was a sense of they knew one portion of that monster with their financial advisor and one with their husband or their partner and one with their children or their grandchildren or their parents, but they'd never seen it whole somehow. One of the stories I found very affecting in the book was about a woman who's always had to scrimp and save, and she only allows herself a bit of luxury when she gets divorced. And it's very interesting what it is she decides to buy for herself. Yes. I'm wondering yes. if you could read that story to us. 
Yes, let me find it. I think everybody who works in the freelance world has an inner bag lady who is ready to haunt her. But I haven't had to be that person so far, except in my heart. And I know how to save money. I do. My rainy day fund is adequate for small emergencies. But one time, the day after Michael and I broke up, I went and bought a brand new bed. It was a hilarious and so tender experience. Nobody was in the store except for Joe, who must have been a 30-something African-American guy. And Joe said I could lie down on their sleep analyzer, which was a huge black marshmallowy type thing covered with norgahyde. And I had to say my name and how tall I was and how much I weighed and what position I slept in and what position my partner, if I had one, slept in. And I just blurted out to Joe, well, I'm getting a divorce. Well, I'm not married, but I'm... And he said, it's okay. So he started showing me these different beds and I had to lie down on all of them to see which one would serve. And so I was lying on a bed that was, you know, pushing $800. And then there was a tax and a special mattress cover and... I just said, okay, Joe, I'm going to do it. I flipped up my visa card and signed up for it. And he said, you'll be glad you've done this. With mattresses, it's all about poof and sink. And I said, Joe, you're talking my language. The mattress came on New Year's Eve. I'd gone upstairs that morning, and I saw how cobwebs had formed all around the room, how my bedroom had become a sad place. So I took down all of the old photographs of the life I had loved so much, and I lovingly cleaned my room. After I finished vacuuming and washing things down, I polished all my furniture with oil and vinegar, just sort of polished away the tears. My room smelled a little like a salad. And then the delivery guys threw out the old bed and set up the new one. I made it up with fresh linens, and then I started to make friends with the bed of solitude. Maybe I should call it the bed of gratitude. But I was just able to say, I must do this now. I must have heart's ease. I must cradle my back. So when I get into that bed, onto that mattress, with my hot water bottle and the memory foam pillow they threw in for free, I just think, poof and sink. Poof and sink. That's a beautiful story about a woman coming home to her own self after a divorce and about the role the bed plays in easing her rite of passage. It's almost a mythical bed that, that <laughs> transforms her life in some way and gives her access to something new and something that's hopeful and redemptive. I'm so glad you shared that story. There's another one I'd like to ask you to read, and this is about the whole problem we have with standard gender roles and housework, and the notion we have that whoever earns the least is going to have to do the lion's share of cleaning. It's Suzanne's story, and it's called Playing Fair. The biggest struggle in my marriage has been about division of labor in the household. My husband and I both started out with academic jobs, but I decided to negotiate a half-time contract, which turned out to be one of those things where you work full-time, you only get half-time pay. It was not a good arrangement. So right off the bat, I'm making half the amount that Tim is making, plus he's in the sciences and I'm in the social sciences, so there's another disparity right there. He got promoted before I did, and so on. I was mad at him for 10 years. 10 years. I was furious because I did almost all the housework, all the little kid work, and I just couldn't figure out why he didn't help more. 
Then at some point it became clear to me that he was counting. He had some rough notion of fairness. It's not that he was a jerk. I mean, I'm still married to him. I love him dearly. But he was calculating at some level what was due. So he put in maybe 10 or 20% of the work, which was less, of course, than it should have been, but nonetheless. I finally understood it when I left my job. I was without income for, I guess, four years, and Tim stopped doing anything, anything at all. It was as if he felt, okay, I'm really going to concentrate on my job because now I'm the total provider. And then, just when I was about to despair, I had the most curious thing happen. I went back to work, and very quickly I got promoted into an administrative position, and I started making more money than Tim was making, which was a total shock. By golly, when I started making more money than he did, he started pitching in. I mean, he now does half the work in the house. I wasn't expecting anything from him. And then all of a sudden, the thing shifted, and that's where it's been ever since. I remember I said to a friend, at some level, I just know that he's been calculating this. But it was a big surprise to me, and I still don't know how I feel about it, honestly. There's a part of me that thinks, wait a minute, how do you put a figure on? I mean, I don't even know where to start. My career would have been totally different if Tim had done more. But on the other hand, it was reassuring to realize that some notion of fairness was involved. Every once in a while, he'll come up with some revisionist comment, how he feels really good that he stood by me all those years while I was working for my career. And I'm thinking, what? I did that in spite of all the other stuff at home. We were just at the bank. We were taking out a second mortgage to pay for our child's private school. And the loan officer asked us, who wants to be the primary person on this loan? And we kind of looked at each other and she said, well, who's making more money? And Tim turned to me and said, I think it's you at this point. Right now, I'm making 107000 and he's making ninety-three. The college pays its administrators ridiculously well, so I feel a little funny to be making this kind of money. But I'm totally happy to have evened this out between us. That's a beautiful story about the unconscious math that we all do. I think women do it because they feel beholden when the man is earning more money. And then, then I think the men do it because they expect that the more time they put in at the office, the less they need to do around the house. And so there's a kind of complicitness in this story and a real honesty in the telling of it where the woman conveys her anger and her resentment, but she works it out with him too. And that as she takes on more responsibility and gets paid more, then he does actually pitch in more. So there's a nice balancing act that happens in this story. Yes, apparently men and women went on between about 1970 and 2000. Men, on average, gradually moved up and up in terms of contributing to the household domestic work. And then around 2000, they stopped. The percentage stopped growing, and it stopped at around 35%. So women, on average, even a, a woman who has a husband who helps, still does 65% to the man's 35%. I wonder if it's to do with just the economy and everybody feels short of time and everybody feels short of money. There's another story I'm very fond of in this collection because it turns a lot of what we think about hoarding on its head. And this is Phyllis's story. And it's about going back to her father's house and having to deal with all the things that he's collected after 
growing up in the Depression and learning that nothing ever should be let go. And I'm wondering if you would read that story to us. When I walked into his house, I felt like I'd walked into the brain of somebody with mental illness. That's absolutely how it felt. My father was born during the Depression, working class, Polish, second generation. His biological mother was from Warsaw, but she died when he was 11, 12. Then his father remarried, and there were seven or eight kids in that blended family, and he kind of got lost, and his father was really hard on him. There was some rejection, deep rejection there. So he was a self-made man. He really saw himself as picking himself up by his bootstraps. He started by picking dumps and was able to turn that into cash, and his dad made soap, so he was part of a soap business. And later he went into the merchant marine and became an air conditioning refrigeration mechanic. He was a fur trapper and trader. He was an auctioneer, a flea marketeer, a buyer-seller, a wheeler-dealer. And eventually he hoarded money and invested money. And that was where some of his wealth came from. But he lived in squalor, so I had no idea. I thought he had delusions of grandeur. When I was a kid, my dad was always rehabbing things. He bought this big old farmhouse, and we lived in four little rooms at the top, and he was always rehabbing all the other rooms. And he was an antique stealer. So it didn't look like hoarding. It looked like a hard-working man trying to make a living. But he didn't ever share that money. There was never enough money, never enough food. We didn't have a lot of heat in our home. You could take a shower once a week. There were real stringent guidelines around the spending of anything. But you know, he bought that farm, and it was a farmhouse, 80 acres, for $12,000. I remember picking up a piece of trash in his yard and saying, you need to clean this up before you die. And I held this thing up, and I said, like this, what is this? He's like, well, if you didn't have your goddamn head up your ass, you'd know that was worth something. And I remember saying, Dad, it was maybe worth something at some point, but now it's trash. So when I did finally walk into his home, I really literally dropped to my knees and I wept when I saw the condition he'd been living in. He'd burned to death in the bathroom. He falls, he hits his head, he grabs something, it falls. Whatever he grabs falls on top of him. There's a heater, an old heater, it falls. And the whole thing goes up into flames. The firefighters had called my brother and had him come to the house to help them search because they had no idea where to look for the body or even if he was home. But his car was in the driveway and there were no tracks leading out. So I walk into this house and it's just wall-to-wall filth and garbage and clothes and piles of papers and books and trash. By that time, my brother and sister had already been working a day. They'd made enough space for me to walk around. So I looked to the left where the bedroom was, and there was about three and a half feet of clothing in that room. Clothing and pillows and lamps and pictures and chairs kind of piled up that you had to walk on to get through. I wish I'd done an inventory because it would have been fascinating. It could be books and broken antiques and food and clothing and a computer might be in there somewhere or a television. In the kitchen, we found like 20 bags of hardened sugar, 25-pound bag. I opened the refrigerator, and there were probably 300 packets of ketchup, mustard and relish, and mayonnaise. We wore Tyvek suits and headlamps and masks over our faces because it was so filthy and moldy and dirty. 
how do you clean? You can't. And it was freezing cold because there was no heat. It was a 15-room farmhouse, the attic and the basement included. All the outside, five barns, one of them was two floors. The 10-room motel across the street, the garage across the street. Then we got a call about the five-room summer house, and he had a trailer in the middle of the woods on Lake George in upstate New York. Just went on and on and on and on and on. My dad had said to us, if you want anything from me, you're going to have to work for it. You're going to have to look through everything because I have money hidden everywhere. And he did. I'd be cleaning out a drawer and I'd find, you know, like $5,000 in $100 bills. Or under a rug, another $5,000. There was a safe, no combination. I don't know how much cash was in there, but a fair amount. You might be cleaning something out and you'd just find 200 or 400 or 500 or 10,000. It was literally everywhere and not in any of the places you'd think. He used to say to me, if you're good, you'll get a lot of money when I die because I'm a multimillionaire. And I'm like, yeah, right. Like, Dad, you live in squalor. He's like, I'm a multimillionaire. You have no idea. He was. Yeah, I got half a million dollars. I had a very estranged relationship with him. But just before he died, we actually reconciled to some degree. I'd go and visit. He'd peek out the door and be, I'm coming right out. And I'd take him to his church. I'd say, let's make a prayer for you. And he'd bring me to Mother Mary. And I'd be like, Mother Mary? I love Mother Mary. We arrived after Mass one day. You could still smell the incense in the church. And we walked around this beautiful land and these beautiful buildings and just connected on this very spiritual level. And he's like, let me take you out to lunch. I have two coupons to Popeye's, and we go to Popeye's. So he'd be able to garner us two meals for under $7 with his coupons. And of course he'd take the pickle relish and the ketchup and the mustard with him. But I saw him trying to connect and open up to me in a way he never had in all my life before. So I can only hold it as a spiritual path and that my being born to him was also my spiritual path. I think his life was a sacrifice for mine. It was a fast track to a generous soul and to waking up and to being all that I am. As I was going through his stuff, I felt I needed to transform it, and I thought, I'm going to make altars. I also took all the objects from Africa that I could find, and I wrapped them in red cloth, and I sent them to all of the people I knew of African descent. I don't know what their value was, but they were beautiful. And everybody I knew got something in the mail. Because my dad had mental illness and was so abusive, it's really hard to see him in the light. But I'm trying to shift that now. I think he did the best he could. I think he cared deeply to hoard that money and distribute it to his children. That money changed my life. It's very unusual to go from a working class to an upper middle class life. I've been able to travel, to support people I love, to do the things they want to do. I put my niece through college in Colombia. I redid my kitchen. I've been able to make repairs on my house. So I think that that continues the transformation. And it's my belief that my dad is really happy. If there's any part of him left that's looking at me from the other side, that he's saying, yes, good. I tried, and I didn't do so great but I'm so glad you're able to do it on my behalf. And, you know, to have more compassion for his brokenness. This is a story not just about money, 
but about safety and security and of home. And what touches me the most about this is that Phyllis really understands that for her father, all the things that he collected were talismans. They were little promises of life and redemption. It reminds me of a recent book called The Swedish Art of Death Cleaning, where the author advises us all to tidy up before we go to make Uh sure that we don't leave all these horrible sorting tasks to our children. But Phyllis's story seems to say that there's something sacred about going through a parent's possessions, and it gives us a chance to get to know them better and to understand what was really at the center of their lives. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I think she's grateful for it. And she herself now lives a very, very different life, a life of beauty and generosity and art-making. So this is a story of money used for transformation. Yeah, absolutely. Christian, thank you for this marvelous book and for your wonderful reading and for teaching us so much about the way money emerges from and shapes our view of home. You can learn more about Legal Tender and Christian's other books at christianmcewen.com. And I hope to have you back again to talk about other aspects of home. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.